I've heard an expression the other day that a board seat is a very extensive uh, piece of real estate and you have to use it with care, uh, which means that you cannot waste that real estate with a single issue director. If you have a cybersecurity specialist on the board and uh, he or she is there just because uh, of that specialty, uh, every time we have a cyber issue, everybody's gonna look at this person and uh, basically outsource uh, uh, to whatever that person says. And this is not a good board. So uh, committees help, but I don't think that's the best solution either. The relationship between the company executives and the board is really important. And what's this culture? of transparency? What's the culture of really wanting to know what our problems are and not trying to cover things up? So I think that's probably one of the big things when we talk about cybersecurity. People are like, well, I'm not sure who knows that information. Well, we need to know. Sustainability needs to be attached to strategy, not to marketing or to investor relations as it is in the organization charge of many companies. Lots of process can be done by robots, can be done by AI. Where's the thinking? Where's our choice? And those are the questions the board needs to be asked. Who's making the choice? Yes. Is it AI yeah. making the choice? Based on what data? Whose data? I put in a lot, a lot of effort to make sure that boards work as they should, uh, because most don't. There's the discussion of how much do we study before we do it? How much can we test? Um, what's it gonna cost? Can we lose the money? Is it losing the money if I invest in learning? If I invest in trying something new, is that losing money? So, you know, if you look at the balance sheet, you've only got investment, costs, and expenses. Where's innovation? Where is it? Why is that person sitting there? Uh, and that has to do with board evaluation uh, succession planning. Um, how, how long should the director be on that board? Uh, do we have a target for that? Because there is a, a, a learning curve and then a period when the director sort of becomes stale and eventually counterproductive. Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Hello everybody and welcome to Future Hacker. I'm your host, Maria Taigi, and today we're doing another roundtable, this time about the boards of the future, with two very special guests, Sarah, Ru Sarah Ruiz and Bauru Cunha. Did I say it right, Sarah? Yes, Hughes. Thank you very much. <laughs> great. Welcome, welcome, Sarah. Welcome, Mauro. Thanks for giving us this opportunity for a great discussion ahead. Welcome, Mauro. Happy to be here. Uh, so let's first give it a background for the listeners, right? So in today's rapidly evolving corporate landscape, the role of company boards has tra transformed profoundly. Once tasked with many supporting shareholders, modern boards face a new paradigm. They are now expected to embrace a broader spectrum of responsibilities, including corporate social responsibility and making a positive impact. The market demands diversity, inclusion, pushing boards to explore, explore new horizons. Amid these changes, the concept of fiduciary responsibility remains central, but it's being challenged by a series of high-profile corporate governance scandals that have sent shockwaves through the business world. Today, we have those two very special guests, and we're going to discuss the evolution and possible path of corporate governance and the board's responsibilities and challenges. So let me introduce you to our first guest, Sarah Ruiz. 
Uh, Sarah is president of the board for FBN Brazil and the co-founder and CEO of Scaffold Education, a technology platform for individualized learning for corporations in constant transformation. She's currently on the boards of several companies and institutions. She's involved in impact investing, angel investing, microcredit for women entrepreneurs, and a board consultant for Family Talks, an advocacy program for public policies that promote family bonds and gender equality. And to join this discussion, we have Mauro Cunha, an independent director with more than 27 years of experience in capital markets and corporate governance. He's one of the top corporate governance voices in Latin America, currently serving as a board member of Embraer in the Audit Committee, AES Brazil in the Sustainability Committee as well, Clubin and Hypera Farm. He has also served on the boards of some of the most important companies in Brazil, including Vale, Petrobras, Caixa Econômica Federal, Uzi Minas, chairman of the board of EBGC, among others. So you see we have we couldn't have a better team to discuss this today. So thank you both once again. Uh, and I'd like to begin today uh, with Mauro. And uh, Mauro, you have been deeply involved in the corporate governance landscape for this extended period of time. You've had the opportunity to witness many significant developments and challenges in the past decades. So from your experience, could you highlight the most noteworthy events, key changes or pivotal moments that have left a lasting impact on corporate governance during this time? Maria, uh, this is a very broad question and uh, uh, might require a very long answer. I've got to try to be as brief as possible. Uh, we've seen lots of changes in the corporate governance landscape, both in Brazil and globally. And uh, uh, it is a challenge for managers and board members to navigate these changes and make sure that we stay current and uh, that we uh, are able to add value to our organizations. In the case of Brazil, we have certainly evolved from a very close capital markets in the 80s and 90s uh, to a more globalized one. Uh, certainly the creation of the Novo Mercado was a landmark in this uh, uh, journey as it uh, created a special listing segments following the one share, one vote principle. And that opened the way for a large wave of IPOs over the uh, following years, uh, which raised the number of listed companies in Brazil from uh, 300 to 500 roughly. So in the meantime, what has happened there was uh, the creation of several corporate governance models that some of which didn't exist before. So we used to have the traditional family owned companies, lots of state owned companies and some subsidiaries of multinationals. Uh, some of these companies are listed, um, and now we have also models of companies that are jointly owned by fund, uh, fund management firms for private equity, or even without controlling shareholder, which is something very common in uh, common law countries, but relatively new in Brazil. The challenge in governance has been to make sure that we create models to uh, govern these institutions uh, according to their uh, specific ownership uh, situation and culture. So um, uh, there's still an evolving process. I still believe that uh, we have many companies that uh, have a mismatch between where they are in terms of corporate governance models and their corporate governance structures. Uh, but lots of them are 
making an effort to uh, conciliate the two and therefore end that. Great, thank you so much, Mauro. And Sarah, uh, building on Mauro's observations, right? How do you perceive uh, changes in corporate governance, particularly in the context of you know women inclusion and the broader di diversification, considering factors like age, races, cultures, and so on? Uh, diverse perspectives are critical in the boardroom. How can boards create a culture that encourages meaningful contribution from diverse members while addressing potential conflicts and egos, right? Yeah, so I think there's a there's a lot of change, um, not only about the private public companies. What is private nowadays, right? So what what is the what do what is the public want from companies right so it used to be you could do whatever you wanted right and the the idea the traditional kind of idea of the the shareholder was what was important and now we've got to to say okay we have a broader group of people that we need to be concerned about so i think the big change that's been since the beginning of the of this century is really let's look at the all of the different in, in Portuguese, we talk about the, 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 not only the shareholder, but who are the other people involved in this ecosystem that are in, involved? So we've got our suppliers and we've got the communities and we've got the um, employees. Who are the clients? So who are all of these people that are interested in what's going on with the company? So... A couple of years, a couple of decades back, we started talking about larger companies, whether they're private or not, need to start talking about their decisions and make them public. So the idea that you can have a company and your company doesn't give any assistance to the community, and that doesn't mean necessarily going with social responsibility, but what are the impacts we're creating, right? Both your materiality impacts your externalities so i think that's a big change that's been happening over the last couple of decades is that we have to have a broader view of our impacts of our company and with that inclusion becomes really important because if we have a group of people making the decisions that are all similar possibly all shareholders possibly all men possibly all 60 or above age what is the possibility that they're going to see all of these different uh, points of view, all these different impacts? So I think we talk about more women on boards, but the big thing is how do we get a diversified, better discussion in a dynamic world where we've got technologies changing, we've got ESGs, we've got you know all of the global development goals from the from the United Nations. So we have a lot of different things and of course security of, of information. So many things that are changing. We need diverse people to bring out the best decisions and have really rich discussions. So I think that's the big thing and women are coming on board with that. Younger people are coming on board. It's not so much that you think of a board member always being the CEO that had 30 years of experience. That 30 years of experience in the past might not be the experience that we need in the present. So I think there's a lot of discussion of, you know, we need to have a different title for it. 
Exactly. And you know, I do like what you said that that's not really what's private and what's uh, public. Like there's no, with the access of information in general, there's no, no, there's no longer the, this idea of the owner of, of the company doing whatever they want and publicizing wherever they want. Like people are more uh, engaged and they're demanding more even from, from the private companies. Uh, the public, we understand that there are so many rules that they need to follow, right? Uh, and I think that it's, it's going to be a, a very healthy movement, having people all around engaged and demanding from big corporations uh, to making a positive impact. Uh, Mauro, there's this growing movement towards having board members with specific expertise. Like as Sarah was saying, right? There's so many different topics that need to be discussed. And now people are talking about having more expertises on the boards, such as cybersecurity. Um, in your opinion, do you agree that this is the right approach or should cybersecurity and similar topics be this collective responsibility for all board members with the establishment of specialized committees, maybe to address them in more details. Uh, what are the advantages and potential drawbacks of those different approaches to handling expertise within the board? Well, I, I think it's very dangerous and very negative. And as a matter of fact, it's not only a trend. The SEC has uh, already mandated disclosure on the existence of uh, uh, cybersecurity specialists, for example. And uh, you also need a climate specialist and so on and so forth. This is all comply or explain, but if, of course, people don't want to explain until they comply. And so you end up uh, fractioning the boards uh, just to comply with these expectations. Now, I've heard an expression the other day that a board seat is a very extensive uh, piece of real estate and you have to use it with care, uh, which means that you cannot waste that real estate with a single issue director. If you have a cybersecurity specialist on the board and uh, he or she is there just because uh, of that specialty, uh, every time we have a cyber issue, everybody's going to look at this person and uh, basically outsource uh, uh, to whatever that person says. And this is not a good board. So uh, committees help, but I don't think that's the best solution either. The solution is directors need to learn. Uh, we need to invest in continued education of directors so that they are up to speed with some of the emerging uh, issues that were not uh, uh, relevant or at least discussed uh, when directors had their formation. So uh, I see that very few companies uh, take seriously the issue of director education and very few directors as well. So. You see directors going to events and so on and so forth, but to have an honest assessment of what am I missing to be a better director? And aside from the premise that a director needs to be a generalist, a director needs to understand financial statements, a director needs to understand uh, sustainability. Uh, if we do not understand these issues, then we're not prepared to be good directors. We need to find our weaknesses and look for ways to uh, improve ourselves, either individually or by means of an institutionalized continued educational program. Great points, and I saw that Sarah was agreeing here. <laughs> and that's totally your field, Vice Sarah. Do you have any comments on that? 
Yeah, so of course, continued learning for for directors, and I I really like this term that the Marius uh, Mauro said about the real estate. We're talking about people that need to be really prepared on the board, it, and they have to read before, they have to study, they have to really be have their I, I like to say their radar has to be connected to what's going on in the world. They can't think that what they knew before is still valid. There's a lot of great experiences that they had, but they've got to keep up with what the future is coming and not even the past, not even the present. Sometimes we have to ask questions about the future. I, I do agree that uh, having just one person that's supposed to be the guru of some question puts too much pressure on one person. And it's a collective decision. Boards are collective consensus. They don't make individual decisions. They make collective yes. consensus. So they need to be able to ask really good questions. And so not always do we know the answer, but the question is the most important in the board. Asking what is it that we need our directors, our executives to do? What kind of consultants can we hire? What kind of diagnostics do we have the information to see what we're prepared for and i think that's that's kind of the um the relationship between the company executives and the board is really important and what's this culture of transparency what's the culture of really wanting to know what our problems are and not trying to cover things up so i think that's probably one of the big things when we talk about cybersecurity. people are like well i'm not sure who knows that information well we need to know that you know And, and to be able to discuss that and say, we don't know everything. Sometimes the board is important to say, you know, we don't know. So how are we going to, how are we going to know? Um, as far as everybody being a generalist, I still believe that everybody needs to have different points of view. So sometimes we're looking for a board, we've got somebody that's got great experience with, with human resources, great development with people which I think for me is probably the most important in, in, in culture, right? So what are the culture we're creating? These boards need to create a culture of transparency, of really honesty, because sometimes we talk about transparency, like Mauro said, we have to read the balance statement. We have to know the numbers. Well, those are the past. And we know how flawed it can be to yeah. just look at some bottom line numbers, right? So. My, my big thing probably with boards now, and I'm probably on the board, I was always fighting for this. How are we doing things? The board used to be, just tell me what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I'd say, no, we need to know how. And people would say, oh, that's tactical. That's just let the executives decide. I'm like, are you kidding me? We need to be able to know what are good, the good cultures that we have. How do we make decisions? And when we don't know what to do, can we can we go up the up the board quickly and get get support is the board supporting or are they just questioning but there's no support so i think cybersecurity is a big issue and everybody needs to be on it consultants for sure and testing and it's it's um it's not something that you can leave to be done and it's oh check the box we've done that it's always moving it's a moving target all the time yes yes And, you know, I, I want to go back to the company's culture in a second. But uh, moving back to, to having qualified and staying, uh, you know, directors uh, and, and keeping the board qualified. 
Do you both uh, see that as an um, individual effort, just like any professional in any field that, you, you know, you, you are on your own to try to keep updated? Uh, but usually when you think about the executive work, many companies invest on them, right? Going to the board level, I think that today people are just struggling to, to do that on their own. Do you see companies, big corporations, initiatives to have a budget to keep their board qualified? Uh, what's your thought on that? Should it come from the companies or should it be an, an individual initiative? Uh, both, by all means. And uh, uh, again, as I mentioned, few companies have structured programs uh, today. And I think there's a cultural barrier, uh, both at the company level yeah. and the individual level. I've heard uh, uh, companies saying, we're not going to do this because we have experienced directors, so they don't need it. And They're supposed to, right? Oh, yeah. And, and I've heard directors saying, listen, if I uh, was uh, chosen as a director here, it means that I already know what I need to know, so I'm not going to spend my time in courses. And I've heard that from, from very senior people. That, so that type of culture, I think, is an impediment for us to develop the skills that we need. Any thoughts, Sarah? Yeah, I like the word impediment, right? So what 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 really is causing people not to show that they have some vulnerabilities, right? Because really, I have to say, I don't know everything, you know? So as soon as somebody tells me they don't need to learn or they don't need to study or something, I think, interesting, because like things are new every day, I can't imagine. But the culture of, I would say the culture still but 20 years ago is you know the ceo has to know everything or you know somebody has to be really you can't show your vulnerabilities that you don't know right so i think that's one of the things to work with and i don't think it's possible for board members to prepare themselves only because some issues have to do with the company so you know we have to we do some deep dives especially when we start to talk about strategy and i think We've got a lot of companies that are family companies that kind of do this. You know, you get together when you're going to work with strategy and you're going to bring in different consultants, you're going to bring in different people, and you're going to study together um, the executives, the board members, family members that are that are um, involved in, in big decisions in the business and kind of everybody get what's new, everybody get what our risks are, kind of the lay of the land of our roadmap of what can go wrong, what we don't know, and then start saying, you know, how are we going to go about this? And bring bringing in people to help us think, you know, think about yeah. the future, think about possibilities. You know, you're talking about future hack. What are the future hacks the boards have to do? We have to have those moments. There's no way to do it. And, um, and some of them are sector specific that you're not going to be able to do for the mere reason that everything has to be your strategy. If it's something about your strategy that has to be learned in the business, we want to really do those deep dives in the business where we can really be talking about something specific for our future benefit and how we're going to win the game of, of business and what, 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 what clients we're going to have, what products we're going to do. You know, those, those have to be talked about inside the, in time, the realm of some privacy. Let me give it on one of your yeah. points, Darren. Uh, you mentioned uh, the CEO, the know-it-all CEO, right? So that problem may be on both sides, on the non-executive directors and on management. 
and we see resistance to change. We see this uh, 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 insecurity to admit that they don't know the answer. Uh, I, I was in a board once and the CEO made uh, this uh, statement to uh, summarize the year and he only brought good things. And then I raised my net and asked the question, okay, so what, what was wrong this year? And he said, nothing. It was, it was perfect. Or well, maybe our stock price could have done better. Now, just, just to mention one point, two people died in our factory that year. So uh, not focusing on the problems uh, to pass an idea of uh, perfection is a, is a very big problem in the board management relationship. So both sides need to understand that they don't know everything. They need to be open to uh, learn and to change. And this has to be done in a pointed way, in an environment of trust and openness. Perfectly put, like you can't act on what you don't see. So how, how, how even is the board supposed to do their work if the company's, the, the CEO and the management is just focusing on the, on the good things uh, in, in, in brackets, right? Um, so coming back to this uh, dilemma of, of being too te technical versus having to focus on strategy, right? Um, since recently, innovation was often handled as a tactical matter, right? Uh, how has this ex expectation shifted to treat innovation strategically? And what is the ideal level of involvement for board members in a company in the company's operational matter, right? So, and adding to that, when it comes to being an innovative company, there's often a risk appetite that may not align with the board's risk mitigation perspective. So how can the board position itself as an ally and facilitate the company's preparedness for the future. And that's when I come back to the culture, right? Uh, you don't innovate without having this proper culture. And on the same time, when, when uh, you are, at least when you are studying, I recently did the IBGC course uh, for board members. Uh, you see a lot about risk mitigation. So it, it seems to me that there's this paradox. So how do you see that? Sarah? And feel free, whoever wants to begin. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, so I think, you know, Waldo just talked about trust, right? And so we've got to have some trust to be able to be uh, open up the risk. I think uh, I, I really like uh, an author about innovation, Larry Keeley, talks about innovation, you know, and first we've got to find out where our problems are, and then we decide where we're going to innovate. And sometimes we waste a lot of money innovating on whatever um so the idea that i have to know what the problem is in the present and what the problem could be in the future to kind of say where where we're going to go with this is one issue the other issue is to say where where can innovation come from that i'm not seeing it right mm. so you people talk about taking a step back or step up you know board members should be able to fly at 200, you know, 20,000 feet and look out at the terrain and see what's going on. Because when you look up or you look back, you see a different landscape. And that landscape comes, especially with technology, where we can have clients that were clients that they then become 
the client of somebody else because of supply chain and distribution, because technology can do it differently. We've got to really have this broader view of where things can come from. And I think that those discussions on where we're going to, where we're going to test. And then, you know, I'm, I'm part of a startup uh, world as well with scaffold education, but also with, um, VR angels and different different things that we talk about with impact investing and startup investing, angel investing is, you know, what is the minimum viable product that we're going to test? Can can we do that? Does it? Can we just test how things work? Can we learn and be a learning organization? So I, I think a lot of the um, old school way of choosing something is almost this perfection idea and the perfection idea doesn't really work you've got to test things and then I guess the culture is can we make mistakes can we talk about the mistake if we can't make mistakes and we can't talk about the mistakes we probably can't innovate because you can't innovate making everything perfect you know so there's the discussion of how much do we study before we do it how much can we test Um, what's it going to cost can we lose the money is it losing the money if i invest in learning if i invest in trying something new is that losing money so you know if you look at the balance sheet you've only got investment costs and expenses where's innovation where is it this is great uh let me have my uh two two seconds of wisdom here because this is a, a learning area for me but uh, starting from the top down, uh, you mentioned risks, Maria, and uh, uh, the vast majority of boards that I participated on never had an adequate discussion on risk appetite. Uh, when that is formalized, usually sits with management, and this is a big mistake. Uh, the board needs to own and dictate the risk appetites as well as the uh, uh, the metrics, uh, the the vulnerability and impact uh, uh, parameters that will be used to classify risk. Uh, and there's importance because it has to do with that idea of uh, do we welcome uh, mistakes or not? Now, I was once in a natural resources company and uh, they did a restructuring and put the person in charge of uh, safety also in charge of exploration. And I thought it was a big mistake because one yeah. area can absolutely not make mistakes and the other needs to embrace uh, uh, mistakes and learning. So um, I think more thought uh, needs to be given to that. The other thing is uh, maybe one of the best ways for boards to foster innovation is to make sure that we have the right people in the right places. Because again, uh, it is not the boards that will uh, come up and think, okay, this technology is something that uh, we can spend X million dollars on. Uh, we need to have good people that uh, have the mandate to to innovate. Uh, the other thing is budgeting. So I think that uh, most boards are not yet equipped to really uh, 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 allocate capital in a, in a more... Um, in a more emphatic way to innovation, but the tool of budgeting is key for that. I mean, how much capital you allocate to innovation and yep. then 
try to decide uh, with management uh, how we're going to uh, prioritize and uh, 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 say what we're going to do more or do less. Again, boards are very, very much scratching the surface of that. And finally, one tool that I found to be particularly useful for boards to be more up speed with innovation is M&A. I was, uh, uh, don't get me wrong, I'm very skeptical of M&A and I voted against many M&A deals, but uh, uh, I was at the board of a company that was very active in M&A. And by looking at the funnel, which was very organized and very professional, we could see the entire industry and things that were going on that uh, we never expected to because there are some tiny companies doing things that, oh, come on, we didn't think about it. So even if we ended up allocating little capital to M&A, just the fact that we had a, a highly professional process allowed us to be open to what was happening outside of the organization. And I thought that this was an amazing experience. Yeah, you see a lot of, um, especially with this innovation hubs, and, and, and looking at smaller companies, what they're doing and what they're bringing, um, both with family businesses, you know, a lot of family businesses have started investing in incubators, right? So they put in an incubator and say, you know, these are, these are our problems. Again, you've got to know your problems. You know, these are the things we want to work on. It's see and bring in people to try to, you know, almost like hackathons, right? That people bring in different ideas. And, and pitch ideas, a lot of innovation, um, bigger companies bringing around an innovation group in, in the company, trying to get new ideas. And one of the things is a little bit what Wild was talking about safety, bigger companies that have longer, uh, lifespan probably have more politics right they've got policies and procedures and everything's got to check the box and everybody's got to check off on anything to happen and that kind of kills innovation before it ever starts right so a lot of companies in, in and i think the boards aren't really involved as they should be with these innovation hubs but to say okay we're going to put a certain amount of money and we're going to put a team and that teams can innovate and they don't have to be the big corporation with all of the, you know, cross the T's and dot the I's. They can do it like a startup. And then people say, well, what would that be? Is it like no rules, right? We're going to, how, what's the risk of safety on the, on the far side, right? Nobody's going to die. Okay. What's the worst that could go wrong? How much money could go? So it's a different type of thinking. And I've had a lot of um, positive changes in big companies through innovation teams. Um, Again, some probably not great when they don't really look at the problems first. If they don't look at the problem and they just start innovating, then they probably don't really um, make a big inroads to, to, to big problems. But um, yeah. I think yeah. those are... And, and I think, Sarah, just adding one little point to that, there's a responsibility on CEOs to involve the directors because I can uh, uh, start asking to be involved in a number of things and I'm going to be uh, paying for management for a number of those but uh, if I'm a CEO and I think that uh, an initiative such as a pitch day is something important for that strategy, I should invite my directors. Company, let's yes. see how it works uh, to make sure that uh, we're on the same page when it comes to something that is not black and white, like uh, 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 hard numbers. 
Right. And I think that's right. Most of it isn't going to be hard numbers, right? It's impossible. So you talk about, we talk about metrics and a lot of the old school is, you know, show me the numbers, show me the plan. Let's, let's plan. And people are just, it's impossible with so many uncertainties to, to know certainty, right? So if you innovate and you say, I'm only going to innovate in what I know, well, that's not innovation, right? And so I've got a lot of friends from my MBA class of basically checking out of being executives and being companies because they're, I'm sick of trying to prove everything. It's impossible to prove everything. So the board wants proof and they want innovation. Like, what do I do? And I think Maud was right about bringing in the board. You know, what's, what's the frequency that the board should be involved? And I think we are running a risk. I see a lot of committees that are working monthly. I see a lot of board members that are turning into consultants. Um, see, you know, with all of the uncertainties, people really pushing up their sleeves to work together. But I think we need to keep a little bit of separation so you have the people who are flying high and looking at the landscape versus the people that are in the, you know, in the four by fours down in the trenches. And, you know, you've got to figure out how to do that without everybody becoming executives. And so I think I've seen um, some concern in, in the, you know, in the amount of committees and how far people are working inside the company. Possibly that's better than not working at all because you, you, you build trust, you build a relationship of understanding what, what the big dilemmas are, but then you've got to pull back. You've got to pull back and be a board. Fully agreed. Yeah. And a lot of interesting uh, points here. And, you know, just back to the, 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 the culture innovation piece, and just so we don't miss that, we can't really, we can't really ha start talking about that without having the right compensation system in place as well, right? Because usually it's like you have to give results either per quarter or per year, but if you don't have the long-term piece, on the executives as well, because it has to be long-term, right? So you, I, I think that if you if you don't have this piece of balancing, okay, the results that you have to give now, but also thinking on the company's survival in a longer time, which is usually a board's uh, responsibility, but if you don't somehow bring it to the executives, it's hard for the executives to be able to give the time that they need to, see, to think on the long-term as well. Do you see that's going on as well? Uh, yes, uh, conversation drives behavior, and uh, many companies uh, try to uh, uh, have dashboards that were very uh, uh, Cartesian in a way, uh, and left little uh, room for uh, subjectivity. I believe that a subjective component of compensation is important, qualitative one, and I also believe that uh, equity grants that are not uh, subject to performance uh, metrics are also an important component because, uh, again, I cannot say, oh, you're only going to get uh, equity if we reach at EBITDA uh, because that's not going to capture the long-term value creation. Whereas, if we're talking long-term, the share price will. So these are some concepts that I think should be uh, had in mind. Of course, you do have metrics that can uh, capture innovations such as percentages of sales from the product, uh, things like that. You can use those, but I still believe that a dose of subjectivity is important. 
Yes. So I'd like to move uh, the topic more now uh, to adoption of new technologies. Uh, so when discussing that, uh, let's say, let, let's use artificial intelligence just, you know, because it's, it's the current trend, but my concern isn't so much about whether a company is, is going to embrace it or not to stay competitive. I think that's a given in today's landscape. But what truly worries me are the implications surrounding the ethical transparency, the fair and inclusive usage of new technologies. So do you believe that boards are well equipped enough to facilitate and promote this type of dis discussions within the organization? So it's not about choosing a technology, and I completely agree with you, Mauri, it's not a board member that is going to do that, but to guarantee that whatever is going to be chosen is going to be used in the right way. And also going back to Sarah, that you said it's not just about how you got there, but uh, what you have today, the, the, the end, but the means, right? How, how you're doing that. Uh, you know, is it, is it ethical? Like, is it in the long term going to be good or is it going to be uh, prejudicial? Is it going to be not equitable, right? And what role should the board play to ensure ethical and inclusive deployment of technologies like AI? Or do you think that this is this is not something that would be discussed on the board level, but but on, on the executive level? Let, let, let me uh, try to start to take that because I think it's interesting where you that you started asking about technology and you finished your question talking about governance. So I think the problem, yes. the problem with emerging technologies is the hype. So it's very sexy for the director to come up to the boardroom and say, oh, what, what are we doing in terms of AI? And he's going to get an answer, but uh, that's not the answer uh, that uh, pertains to his job. So uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, things that go in the background before we're able to discuss that. And these governance issues that you mentioned related to, to ethics, uh, to inclusion, uh, they, they, they go way beyond technology because uh, they, they speak to the company's uh, culture. So... I, I like to say there's a lot of hype in ESG, but uh, ENS without a G is greenwashing. And I think that applies to many kinds of discussions. The problem is that technology is sexy and governance is boring. Unfortunately, we need to discuss the boring to make sure that we're addressing the sexy. Well, yes, I think governance for sure. Uh, we talk about ethics, right? And um, in data, and who, whose data do we have? What are we gonna do with it? Um, what is the risk? You know, the board members have to be asking, what is the risk of our data getting to somebody else's hands? What is the risk of our data getting out? And it's it's our responsibility to take care of it. So when you talk about AI, then you're also talking about the ethics of what people are and not what we want them to be right so when you start looking at data of how people decide how things are chosen and where all this data comes from is from real people making real decisions and those people aren't perfect and those people normally are probably in in average not what we would hope for on our best day so we really have to be looking about how much we're using AI with our own data 
and what's, what that data is showing. So there's ways to clean your data. There's ways to look at it. And we need to see what's really happening before we start making decisions with it. I think it's the first thing. And the second thing is to be looking at, um, do we need that data on people? And where's, where could it get lost if we, if we um, don't take care of it? So there's, you know, boards should mitigate risk. What is the risk of that, those decisions? And um, part of the discussion is if we allow AI to do simple tasks in the business, that's great, right? Because it's artificial intelligence. So we say, oh, we're going to let it do the intelligence of the processing and not the thinking mm-hmm. inside the company. So we could say, okay, yeah, lots of process can be done by robots, can be done by AI. Where's the thinking? Where's our choice? And those are the questions the board days we ask. Who's making the choice? That's, is it AI yeah. making the choice based on what data? Whose data? Have, have we seen how they're making a choice? You know, and you've got the you've got the um, the big cases of like Apple credit card, right? Of giving not giving credit to women at the same rate that they give men. And when they looked at the data, well, AI is looking at how people give credit, and people give credit not equitable. Yeah. So are we going to let AI make the decision or are we going to make the decision? So uh, we have a little bit of that. And uh, the other thing is AI is the average, which for me, average is mediocre. And I don't know that I want all the decisions made on mediocre data. So <laughs> we have to really be thinking about this. This is great insight. <laughs> let me add two points a bit. And uh, just to show how the traditional framework actually remains useful uh, and we should focus on our job. Um, most of the companies that, I work, that I've worked for, even those that have solid enterprise risk management areas, they rarely have the discipline of ensuring that all board decisions are accompanied by a proper risk assessment. So I've seen uh, uh, billion-dollar projects go to the boards without a risk report uh, based on the ERM. So that applies to AI. Uh, if you're making decisions related to, to AI, uh, they should have a risk assessment. And of course, uh, we're talking about a different type of risk that uh, needs to be studied and, 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 and structured. But if your company has the discipline that every material item that goes to the board needs to have a risk assessment, that already helps a lot. The second thing is the concept of red teaming. I've been defending that a lot in companies. Uh, and by red, red team, I mean having an area of the company that uh, uh, is really focused on uh, 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 trying to find what's wrong with a given idea or a given project or so, and so on. Very few companies have that's ingrained in its processes uh, to make sure that uh, we develop uh, better decisions. Again, uh, red teaming seems to me to be critical to make sure that uh, wherever we're going in terms of AI will not lead to unintended consequences. So again, old school concept that if we have the culture of applying them properly, 
will allow us to handle with new technologies in a better way. Yeah, yeah, great points. Uh, I'd like to go back to to one thing that you said, Mauro, and you know, we can't have this con conversation without uh, having some discussion around ESG. And you use the word hype, ESG, uh, greenwashing, and you know, like any hypes, uh, it makes me sad to see not only the hype around ESG, but also the backlash in the US. Because uh, in my thought, if we could just go back to basics to think what it just simply would mean, right? Like a, a company taking care of the, their, the society around them, of the environment, making sure they're, whatever they do, the, the impact is not going to be uh, damaged to the, to the society and, and you know, having the right governance in place. And all of a sudden, you see all those ratings and all those hypes around, I don't know, buying carbon credits. And then you see as a country like Brazil, in which, I don't know, half of the population don't have access to, to basic uh, sanitation and, and, and your choice is to buy carbon credits. So, like, where are we going? Like, are we doing that just to show, just to have the ratings and to get the investors? Or are we actually doing something with looking within, looking inside to see the real impact to the society. Uh, and then you see the backlash, uh, which, which I understand, right? So how, how do you see uh, ESG actually evolving back to something actually good and meaningful to, to just checking the boxes to get the ratings and, and getting the, the, the to, to people's pocket, you know? Brilliant. Yeah, um, you got to stop me at some point with this issue because I just gave a talk at the IBGC Congress that uh, touches precisely on that. Um, again, uh, we should go back to basics. I think the problem is that ESG has been driven uh, by the wrong reasons and by the wrong uh, uh, players. Uh, companies are uh, taking these measures as a sort of a, a, a social response uh, to uh, at the media, to, uh, to society, and so on and so forth. And I like to think that we don't need to resort to uh, stakeholder uh, theory to think about sustainability. Uh, if you go to the bylaws of every single company in Brazil, you're going to see uh, Article 4 or, or 3 that the company's time frame is unlimited. Unlimited means forever. It's longer than the period that you can uh, model on the spreadsheets uh, and discounts to a net present value. So uh, the bylaws are the mandate that shareholders give to managers. So, it is in the fiduciary duty of managers and directors to think about sustainability because they need a company to survive for the very long term. So uh, when you think about this way, instead of uh, uh, getting pressure from the media and some idea of uh, do-goodism, we have to understand that our shareholders, and I go back to Luton Friedman here, who was not that wrong to start with. Uh, he was very clear that companies had to do things uh, for the society in their own interest. And if you think of the fiduciary duty of directors and managers to the owners, they have to take into account uh, ESG. So if we do that, we have a, a very clear path to understand why these companies need to, uh, uh, to do better in relation to externalities that were previously not included in the financials. So, um, uh, one of the consequences of the drive of EFG coming 
from the wrong path, in my opinion, is that many companies have a specific area for sustainability. And this can be, I mean, something you do in the beginning, I mean, just to, to get going. But in the end, it's not positive because it is not uh, becoming something hardwired into the company. Uh, again, let me give you another example. I was in a company that was pledging to use carbon pricing for all, all its products. Then at the board, it received a very large project uh, with a, a viability study that did not include the carbon pricing. Why? Because the area that did the projects was not talking to the sustainability area. So uh, it needs to be something, uh, uh, we need to have a single governance. Sustainability needs to be attached to strategy, not to marketing or to investor relations as it is in the organization chart of many companies. I'm going to stop there because otherwise I'm going to monopolize time. Yeah, so I think there's, 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 um, the idea, especially when you're talking about public companies, when, you know, we've got people are making decisions quarter to quarter and their stark classes, prices are going up and down based on lots of really short term issues. It's very hard to get long term vision. So I, I would hope what I would hope, and I'm not sure that that's actually happening, is that investors start to have a, a broader sense of what is sustainability and ask better questions that aren't just quarter to quarter. Because, you know, like we're talking about innovation. If I invest in innovation for something that's going to be for next year, for the year down, and it's looked at as an expense or a cost and it's not really an investment, well, then I'm, 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 I'm really... Um, I'm tying the hands of the executives and the board to do a good job. So I think with uh, family businesses that I work a lot with family businesses, what we're working on, and, and I think family business has that a little bit better, especially when they're private, but also public, but usually not totally controlled by um, the public. You know, what the public is doing with buying and selling the stock isn't necessarily changing what the company does, we need to be looking at what is the mandate for sustainability. And and Morrow's right. What's you know, and that mandate has to look at at, at stakeholders. It can't just look at the shareholders. It has to look at sustainability on, on a on a broader landscape, bigger bigger picture. Um, and that's that's happening to a lesser extent. And if that's really not happening, then it's really hard for executives and, and board members to, to do a good job. So then, you know, say, why why is it so easy to greenwash? Because the people who are buying the product, really, that's good enough for them. So with social media and with information about what information is getting to, to people. So there's, there's, the, there's an information gap as well, right? So media is really easy to make the hype and then people can make hype on something that's not sustainable at all not even economically not for any shareholder so i think it's back to basics about Maoro is ethics transparency in, a, in this broader look of the company it's not the company's fault it's usually you know we're all integrated in a big ecosystem we have to get everybody looking at, at, at those factors right but we do, and I think the big thing is the integrated ESG is something you put some numbers down and say, I got some materiality check. It's how we look at business, 
how we look at what we're doing, what are the impacts that we're doing. And that's a harder, that's a harder uh, change and it's a culture change. And, but that's the culture change that probably is the most interesting for society. And, and I think one, um, one key thing that uh, tries to address this issue, Sarah, at least in the, in the realm of uh, public companies, is stewardship. And I've devoted my last years at Amec to try to spread the concept of stewardship, uh, which is the concept through which uh, institutional investors need to act as owners. So again, if I'm buying the stock in a company that says that it has an unlimited time frame, as an owner, I must engage with that company to make sure that that is happening. And I see a lot of reductionism on the part of institutional investors because uh, these companies became huge. BlackRock uh, manages $8 trillion. So they need to uh, automate everything. And this is the drive behind uh, this standardization of metrics. And quite honestly, this is the best way to ensure that rewashings do not happen because you cannot yeah. boil things down to single numbers. Of course, we can try to get more standardization, but you're only going to check whether the company is acting in a sustainable way if you sit down and talk to them. It has to be subjective again. And this takes time, it takes effort, and it's called stewardship. Uh, I think that's a great point of the subjective part. And, and I think that's part of the thing that we miss in business is everything has to be so, you know, have to have a metric for everything, has to be really clear, objective. And then we have to make a bunch of subjective decisions. It doesn't match. And that's something that we could, you know, we can do better. And you talk about, you know, ESG with materiality, and then you put AI on top of it, and then you put AI in a robot deciding who's buying and selling stock. You know, where's the subjective decision of the of the sh the shareholder, yeah. right? And and I really like Marl's point that people have to act like owners. And owners, and so you talk about family business, which when we look at owners, we say you want to work from one generation to the other. What's gonna make what what do what values what what legacy brought us to today and what values and inputs are going to get us to the next generation and what is the and what's changed for us probably on family business is velocity you can't wait for the next generation we've got to do it together and the, what we're looking at is you know three or four generations working together which is diversity three or four generations looking at things differently and bringing mandates that, you know, help us look into the future. Um, hopefully that'll make a big difference. And I think family businesses have something that we've lost with media. It used to be, it's one of my, one of my pet um, funds to give money to is local newspapers. So it used to be that you believe and you have trust in local newspapers because the tree that fell over and caused a problem, you see the tree fell over and it's in your neighborhood. But when we just get news from social media and we get news that doesn't really relate to our day to day, we have a problem that we don't trust that news. And if the news is all about likes, we also have reasons not to trust it. Yeah. So where are people getting their information about the business? Family businesses are part of communities and the closer they are to the community and the closer they are to what's happening in the community probably gives them a higher trust bracket than other com companies. And so what we see now is 
who are people trusting about decisions, about information, about transparency? And family businesses are something that's really changing the trust factor. But we need to work on that. And, you know, one of the things we talk about in family businesses, most of us are low profile or to no profile. But with this world the way it is, we, we have to share. We have to share information. We have to get out there and um, and do it in a, in, a, in a way that we can build trust. Such a, such a rich discussion. Uh, unfortunately, we're almost running out of time. Do, do, can we have a, la- a last question, a last discussion? Can we do that? Yes, sure. Mauro as well? We can yeah. try. <laughs> can try? Okay, so, uh, you know, I, I, uh, we can't end this conversation. You know, we are future hackers, so I have to ask, what's your view about the future? So, so what do you foresee as the future of boards? Like, will the traditional model of those fixed boards with, you know, relatively long tenures, limited involvement in the company's tactical operations, will it persist? Or do you see it evolving in a different way? And, you know, how do you envision also new technologies affecting this decision-making process? And Or maybe in the future, we are not having boards as is. Maybe we are just going to have this group of advisors changing. What, what do you foresee? It's, and just playing around, right? Sarah, want to start? Sure. Well, I think on, on the trust factor, you know, ha- having, I, and, and me from having boards, being on boards and, and bringing new people on boards... The, the best question is, is why, 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 why? Why yeah. do you do it that way? Why don't you do it a different way? And new people ask great questions. But if they don't have more experience in the business, they're not going to actually contribute maybe to solutions. So I think we have to have a mix of new people coming in, asking whys, asking the information maybe about where the risk. Because as soon as you're too close, you don't see risk. I'm used to whatever you're used to doing yeah. then becomes not risky. So we need to have a mix of, of new people and, and more experienced people all the time. Um, I see boards getting bigger, not smaller because of more diversity. Um, I'm a little concerned that boards might become too profile, you know, like, like you talked about. Oh, we need somebody for inclusion. We need somebody for this, somebody for that. I think we need to really not go that that route. But that is a risk. And I think it's a risk of um, of almost an oversight in compliance instead of group decisions and in guidance. So when Mauro talks about stewardship, I would hope that we go for stewardship and for guidance and not for compliance so only. Um But I think uh, boards are more important than they ever been. Well, uh, Maria, I think your question is great and I'm struggling with it uh, because um, I also believe that in the future, we're going to need something different. That being said, right now, uh, I've put in a lot lot of effort to make sure that boards work as they should uh, because most don't. So... uh, and, and go back to Sarah's points of the why, I would add one why idea, which is, why is that person sitting there? Uh, and that has to do with board evaluation, uh, succession planning, 
Um, how, how long should the director be on that board? Uh, do we have a target for that? Because there is a, a, a learning curve and then a period when the director sort of becomes stale and eventually counterproductive. So uh, boards need to discuss that and make sure that they plan for their renovation with time. Uh, but again, this is to make sure that boards work as they should in a traditional model. In parallel, we're seeing all these, uh, 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 this acceleration and all these changes and uh, it, it seems that we're going to need some sort of new organization, but I, I still don't know which. Uh, the point is, at the end of the day, you need a group of people, and it needs to be a group of people that is accountable. Uh, and that is the definition of a board. So in my mind, I can't, I can't get out of that uh, uh, tautology. But uh, uh, it is something to be challenged because the way boards are working now is really uh, uh, slow in relation to the evolution of the needs. So maybe we'll still have boards, and, and I, I'm thinking as I speak here, so apologies for that. But I think we're going to still have boards, but they will need to work in very different ways. Thank you. Thank you. Sarah, would you like to, to say something I, else? I was just going to say that, you know. Yes. We've seen changes of activist board members, activist um, shareholders that buy into companies to be able to help be to accelerate change. Sometimes in a very um, aggressive manner. And I think to Maldo's point, you know, if the boards aren't working well, what are what are the what is the society's ability to go in there and say you got to make it differently and currently the only way is these activists coming in and i'm not sure that those are actually good choices so i'm not sure that i know the answer as well but i think the answer why are somebody here why is it so slow why are people becoming that the board is their job it can't be their job they have to be looked at as owners they have to be accountable like moto said but they also have to be there for the time that they're good to be there. And I, you know, I think um, there might be some evaluations coming for, for how, how that works. So, but I always worry about these evaluations because then you have outsiders making the decision. So it's, yes. it's called. That was brilliant. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much, Mauro. It was a real, really, really uh, rich discussion. I really appreciate you both being with us today. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future.